Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. And today's episode could be called Not Your Granddad's Cancer Show, because today we're talking about men and cancer. And luckily, I have three great guys to fill me in on this. Um, They're in their 20s, 30s and 40s, and they'll be sharing some of the obstacles, some of the expectations and challenges that come along with being a man with cancer. We'll chat to Dan, a performer in his 30s, who was working out with a personal trainer when he discovered what he thought was a new muscle but turned out to be a rare sarcoma. And we'll hear from Neil, who was living in London in his early 20s and when he was diagnosed with a brain tumour. And right now beside me, I have Mike. Hi, Mike. Hello, Tatum. And you were a Marine and then in the police force. That's right, yes. Yes, Yes. I was, yes. And tell me, what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed? Um... Normal family life, really. He's married, two young children. Um, both of us were working full-time, children going to school. Um, but, you know, both of our careers were heading in the direction that we wanted them to. And, and we were very happy with, um, you know, our, our life um, in, in Dorset, you know. And so um, getting diagnosed at that point was um, quite a bit of a shock because you just don't really expect it to happen. No. And... Uh, how did you find out? Well, it was it was more a case of um, I had a um, lower back pain for a long period of time, and um, initially I wasn't sure if it was just a back injury or um, or if it was um, I pulled a muscle or something, you know, or something else, a trap nerve or something, and um, so I just didn't really give it a huge amount of thought. Started to take some painkillers just to get me through and um, take the edge off, take the edge of it, and then um, just, and just carried on with work as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it didn't really go away, and the the pain started to get worse and worse. And my uh, painkiller intake of uh, which just you know paracetamol and ibuprofen um, started to increase. And um, but you know I didn't want to um, come across at work as you know playing the the bad back card, you know, and because um, um, you know it, it, in, a, in some roles, you know, some people can take a lot of time off work, and you know, just through through back pain, and um, I had quite a good. Uh, reputation and, and I, I wanted to continue working. I didn't want to be, um, you know, uh, taking any time off work. Um, I thought I could manage it myself and right. with painkillers and that, you know, through taking it a bit easier, um, it would uh, sort itself out in the end. But it didn't. And um, I phoned the GP and I spoke with the GP over the phone, followed the normal GP's advice of no heavy lifting and um, um, but keep moving. And um, so I continued to do that. And then I continued to take more and more painkillers. And this went on for about six months. Um, I developed a limp. Um, I had a good routine with my painkillers. I get to work in the morning and I'd, I'd take um, four or five paracetamols in one go. And that would see me through um, for most of the working day. And then before I go home, I'd take some more. And then I'd take some more uh, later in the evening. Um, so it, w- it was quite an overdose, really. And that went on for weeks. Um, I was saying, and my wife was like, "What's going on? You know, you've got to go to the doctor. This is this is insane." And it started from there. And when you were going through treatment, so it sounds like you're someone that sort of powers through things. Yeah. Would you say? <laughs> well, yeah, Do you think that's a bit of your training as well? Well, yeah, because the mentality when you when you're a soldier, and certainly in the Marines, you know. Um, you have a bit of a, you know, take take two brief in and carry on, you know. So, um, you know, being on the sick or anything, you know, like that was a ne- was seen as negative. Right. So you always wanted to be, um, you know, not complaining about being in pain, not complaining about, you know, having a cold or any ailments or anything. You just you suck it up and crack on, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so that mentality had stayed with me 
you know, right up to this day, I think. And when, and can you um, tell us what you were diagnosed with? So I was, I was diagnosed with a bone marrow cancer called myeloma. Um, the, the seat of it was a, a growth in my sacrum, which is in the base, base of my spine. So it's like a tumour, but it's not a tumour. It grows out of the bone from the bone marrow. Um, and that was pretty much the seat of, of the cancer. Um, I had some other areas in my hips as well where the cancer was starting to grow. Um, and, and that was the, the pressure of the size of that growth was putting pressure on all my nerves around my pelvis and that's what was causing the lack of mobility and and the pain mm-hmm. um, and, and certainly by the time I was diagnosed which was in July and the pain had really kind of started late January early February that year you know I, I was only really able to walk probably from the front door to the to the car and the driveway without um, without painkillers um, so it was, it was quite debilitating at the time yeah and how did you approach treatment? Did you follow through with that kind of powering through, yeah, looking yeah. at kind of the next goal post? Like, how did? Yeah, I didn't know any different really. Um, once I got over the grief of the diagnosis, um, myeloma is incurable. So um, you know, when you, I think when everybody, everybody's first diagnosed with the cancer. Um, they go through. I certainly did a, a period of, of grief, of, mm-hmm. of trying to take in, you know, what's what's happened and what's going to happen in the future, or what may or may not happen in the future. Um, but then treatment starts quite quickly, um, and then you have these short-term goals to aim for. Um, for me, it was um, about six months of chemotherapy. And then um, after that stage, more tests. And then that would give you an indication of how the chemotherapy would work. And then after that, it was radiotherapy. That would give you an indication of, of, from tests after that. And then onto a stem cell transplant. So you had these short-term goals to aim for. Um, and, and when you achieved those, those goals, it was like great, happy days. You know, everything's going on as it should do. And you can be able to move on to the next stage. Uh, and, then, and that's how I coped with it for that year and what happened when you got to the end of the active part of your treatment well um it was pretty much a, almost a year you know to the to the month really um had my stem cell transplant uh and then you have a period of 100 days where you have no treatment um because it gives your body the time your immune system to to come back up to strength and then you have um, tests at the end of the 100 days, which gives you an indication of how well the stem cell transplant has worked. And for me, it put me into a very good remission. Not a full remission, but a very good remission. Mm-hmm. So my cancer level was um, just less than one. And um, so you're discharged then from the medical side of things. Um, obviously, they, you know, they have a lot more poorly people to carry on with, you know. So once you're finished, you're then... Um, kind of left to your own devices, really, um, and and for me, um, those kind of short-term goals, that sort of regular interaction with with the hospital, which was a bit of a source of reassurance and um, someone to lean on if you weren't too sure, um, had kind of gone. You know, although they still said, you know, if there's any problems, you can give us a ring. But you know, but there they would obviously. I I'd finished my treatment and. You know, they needed to focus on people that were still in their treatment. So you do feel quite alone. Mm-hmm. And and then you you start to wonder, well, what's going to happen in the future? You know, and um, and for me, um, I went back to work quite quickly um, within my that 100 days period, which in hindsight was a bad mistake because I just made myself ill. Um, I was um, susceptible to infection and I was picking up those sorts of things quite regularly and um, but I, it was in that period that I my work mojo if you like had, had gone just disappeared and I, and I couldn't understand why when I was at work I just felt like I was wasting what time I had you know being well before I relapse you know and um, whereas prior to um, diagnosis, you know, 
I would quite happily work for as long as I needed to, you know, but um, and I was in quite a responsible position. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, that, that work mojo, that had just gone and I couldn't really understand why. And I was just really going through the motions, really. And um, and I started to struggle with um, mood swings and um, I do and say things which were completely out of character. So did you feel like your personality was changing? Oh, everything had changed. I felt like everything had changed, you know. Um, you, you, you like thrown this curveball. Um, you know, you want to get back to work, you want to get back to normal, how things were pre-diagnosis. And, you know, get back on get back on the horse, so to speak. And, um, you know, guys at work like, oh, Mike, you're looking really good, you know, glad to have you back, you know, great stuff. And on the face of it, I was like, yeah, it's great to be back, I'm feeling fine. But it was like a Russian doll. Mm. I had a layer of of that for work colleagues, the next layer for my friends, and the next layer for some family. And um, really, the, the the person who saw the real me, if you like, was, was my wife, Jo. Um, which you which you couldn't hide from, and because she's with me all the time, and, and my children, of course. But I could quite happily put on a put on a facade at work, um, and you know, um, come across as everything's all all fine. But uh, I started to wonder, you know, why I wasn't feeling the same as I used to. And with that kind of range of emotions, like. How would you have described them at the time? Was it like frustration or anger or like how how was it coming out or irrationality or like what? It was, it was a mixture of, at that stage, in the early stage, it was a mixture of everything because yeah. um, that, it was almost like the, iso- the isolation had started at this point. Um, everybody's like, oh, well, you're fine now, aren't you? So um, you're in remission, that's it, all good, you know, crack on. Um, but in, in reality, I knew that I had incurable cancer and that, you know, I was going to be having to step up to the plate again to go through another, you know, go through a relapse and another course of chemotherapy. Um, so that was in that mindset. I was still in that fight mode. And um, I, I couldn't feel that I could relax and believe that I was in a, a remission that was potentially, you know, to hold for a good period of time. Um, I think... Um, you know, my, you know, my my family did notice some change within me and my personality, um, but I, you don't re- you don't recognise it yourself because it happens quite slowly. You know, you know, I never felt that way before. I'd always been strong, strong character. You know, um, happy to be the first in through the door, dealing with um, you know situations and scenes. Um, you know, you know through the years of being a police officer, and I'd never struggled with any of that. Um, but then to be back at work and to start to feel differently, experiencing things which, well, I just didn't even know what to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we mentioned guilt and anger. Um, you know, when I ended up um, getting some some counselling, um, it was that counselling counselling process which helped me identify what I was feeling, and and yes, I thought I was feeling um, intense guilt um, about a number of things, but it wasn't. It was actually intense anger, um, and that manifested itself in um, my short temperedness, my mood swings, my lack of empathy. Um, you know, being confrontational in in situations where you would never normally be confrontational, and I was still a serving police officer at this point as well. Don't forget, you know. So um, a bit of road rage would come out. You know, I'd mm. never in a million years would be someone who who'd, be, who'd engage in road rage, but I but I was. You know, if someone flashed me, you know, uh, on the road, I was like, oh, screw you, you know, and I would never. I never would have done that. Right. Things like that. And um, so my personality changed completely. And it wasn't good. And not in a good way, neither. And when you caught yourself in that moment of experiencing road rage, did you sort of say to yourself, oh, shit, like, what, what's going on here? Or were you so in it that it took someone else to sort of point it out to you? Or It was after, the, it was after those individual events. Mm-hmm. That I was, that I was like, what on earth do I do that for? Yeah, I would never normally do that. I couldn't, I, I almost couldn't stop myself from doing it at the time. Um, 
I was in hosp- I was in hospital after clinic, and I was queuing to use the the gents' toilet. And um, this old gentleman, um, he he come in and and pushed in and went and used the toilet before me. Clearly, you know, jumping the queue. And when he came out, I was like, "That's okay, mate. You know, we just stood here for for no reason at all." I never would have said that to an elderly gentleman. Crikey, he was probably dying for the toilet and was probably wasn't aware. Poorly, um, just come out of treatment and not really aware that there was a queue, and and yet I said something you know awful like that. I never would have said anything like that. But it, at the time, you can't stop yourself. Right. So it's, it's just like, come out. It's like what you mentioned before that fight or flight. Like you yeah. were you were in fight constantly. Yeah. You you're constantly in that level of, you know, whatever whatever life throws at me, whatever is going to happen, I'm ready for it. You know. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, and, and tell me what, what you think of this, if um, anger, I mean, anger is quite uh, motivating and it, I'm talking in, in generalizations, um, anger seems to be uh, an emotion that men um, are it kind of, it, it's accepted that men experience yeah. so that you know, when feeling maybe other things like lost or scared or confused, um, that those things might turn into anger. Would you say that that that, that might be? Um, yeah, correct. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think with uh, with the whole anger thing, um, you know, you didn't you don't want to admit the. You know the weaker emotions. You don't want to admit that you're feeling vulnerable. You don't want to admit that you're feeling scared about the future. You don't want to admit to anybody else, let alone you know yourself, that um, you know that you're struggling. And um, and and so um, with with anger, um, you know that that was um, it was like a natural manifestation, mm-hmm. if you like. But the, all the everything that came with anger. It puts you into that frame of mind where you're where you're ready. You know, you mm-hmm. have that kind of release of um, chemicals, almost like adrenaline. You know, yeah. and uh, and you're constantly in this state. Did you also have other symptoms of sort of because you know when you're geared up for a fight, any little thing can set you off? Did were there any other sort of triggers of sounds or that? Yeah, it was as time went on. Um, you know, l- looking back, you know, because like I say, at the time you don't really realise that because this happening over a, mm-hmm. a slow period of time. Um, you know, uh, loud bangs, um, dropping cutlery into the dishwasher. You know, when you're not expecting it. You know, and that that can send you through the roof. You know, you're you're there ready. Bosh! Oh, what was that? What was that? You know, and you're you're always like hyper hyper sensitive. You know, constantly. Um, like a hypervigilance. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. You know, we're normally, you know, dropping crockery or something like that. You know, you wouldn't bat an eyelid, but it would mm-hmm. make you jump and you would almost be there, stood up, ready ready to go. And that would then make you cross, you know. And I yeah. would say, oh, for goodness sake, what do you do that for? You know, and I, I, I would... I would say you know, whoever drops it, being, you know, the children, my wife. And then I would I'd flash and I would... Um, you know, and I would, you know, get cross and I would shout or say something, um, which I, which afterwards I would regret. Um, and so um, it, it, it played out in a, in other ways. I was, um, and I still do to a certain extent, but I was having um, reoccurring nightmares. Um, it was um, nothing to do with cancer and nothing to do with um, anything I'd experienced in the past, but it was, it was the same dream which um, where I was stuck and I couldn't get out of couldn't get out of it. it effectively I was I was back in the marines as a 40, 40 year old man with a bunch of 20 year olds and I was always at the back I didn't want to I couldn't get out I was stuck in this room or this exercise or this whatever and I just couldn't get out um and and that I don't get so many as now but at that period it was happening happening a lot and um and obviously my wife would would know during the night because I would shout every now and then you know in the middle of my sleep you know and um so it was there was a lot of things that were going on and from your training in the marines like had did you know to recognize signs of ptsd like was that part of no nothing no nothing at all and nor the police 
Really? Yeah. And so um, when did you become aware that PTSD can it be was, triggered well, by... Pretty, pretty much when my, mar- my marriage was on the brink of collapse. Um, because when you're discharged from the NHS medical side of things, you're not really given, or I wasn't given a debrief, and um, so to speak, you know, of what had happened and all the things we've gone through. And, and it wasn't really given a huge amount of, you know, well, if this happens or if you feel this way or if you notice this kind of, you know, tick list of things, then you need to come back to us, you need to speak to somebody because that's not quite right. Didn't really have that at all. Um, but um, over a period of um, probably over 18, 18 months, probably nearly two years, um, things started to um, almost compound it. I, I was medically uh, retired out of the career, out of, my, out of the police, out of my career. So, you know, that was another negative thing. Cancer, you know, the gift that keeps on giving. Mm. Your career's gone. Um, what am I going to do now? Um, you know, so I was at home a lot. Um, my wife was still working full time, and I was struggling with the transition of losing, losing my career. And, and, and now I was thinking, well, I'm losing my future. Um, I'm not going to have or do the things that um, that a father would normally do. I'm not going to have the long retirement with my wife that you know that I thought I was going to have, and somebody else would have that experience, and somebody else would be walking my daughter down the down the aisle, and and so all these things were just constantly, constantly chipping away um, in the back of my mind, and um, so it, it turned me into this into this person. Um, and, and and Joe and the family had to live with that every day. And although I was trying within myself to stop myself from being ratty and short-tempered, um, you know, and from being the bad guy, um, you know, people, your partners, they can only take so much when they're living with living with someone with with depression like that. Um, you know, Joe was like, "Is this is this the life for me? Is this what?" you know, I've got, you know, for the you know, next God knows how many years, um, living, you know, with this, you know, ogre in the house. The children had a similar opinion because, you know, I would over chastise them if they would drop something, I would shout, you know, what would you do that for? You know, sit round and and you would you you would um make mountains out of molehills, things which, you know, as a parent you would just oh, just being kids, you know, if, you know, stuff for you would just let go straight over your head. Um, but at that time, you know, they were, they just manifested themselves into much more important things, I suppose. Um, my wife and I argued one weekend, it was um, Father's Day weekend, actually. And, um, and I'd said some pretty hurtful things. And um, off the back of this, off the back of that argument, I felt that um, I had to leave. Um, I'd become pretty toxic within the, within the, the family you know the family home it wasn't a family home it was not a nice place for for joe or the children to live and um and and i i i felt that i had to leave and give the give them some breathing space and i checked into a cheap hotel in southampton for the weekend um wondering um how on earth had had it come to this you know a couple of years previous i we were living Normal lives, good careers, um, lovely family life, great wider family, and there I was um, sat in this cheap hotel, wondering how how did it all get flushed down the toilet. And um, when you were there, is that when you thought, okay, like I need I need some guidance, then some that support. Was that was it. Yeah. Well, there was there was it, it, it for me. It couldn't have got any worse. Yeah. You know, I was. Losing my wife, losing my family, losing my home, losing everything, you know, and um, and that was the point where I thought, well, you know, I've got to admit that, you know, I'm a lot responsible for this, and I've got issues which I need to do something about. It's not going to sort itself out. I can't just take two proof in and crack on. Right. Um, I, I've got to do something about it. And So um, all your training, everything that you had previously done to approach hurdles just weren't going to work wasn't anymore. working at that stage, no, for that. But then I I almost like took ownership of my own health. Mm-hmm. I thought the only way that I'm I'm going to beat this is to take ownership of it myself and um, I didn't believe that someone was going to come along 
give me a magic pill and say you're fixed. And I, and I, um, so I thought I need to do something. And um, so you know, the following Monday, straight to the GP, explained what had happened, and, um, and I started a course of antidepressant medication, um, depression medication, which. Um, which I had no problem with because um, it was the right medica- medication for me, but it took away that that base layer of stress. So mm. you know, when you're you're living in a constant you know layer of stress, like your stress bucket is like four fifths full up, and it just takes one little thing to to sort of overflow you, overflow it, and you know, kind of explode if you like. So, but the for me the the medication lowered that, and that gave me then the ability to focus on. The next stage, which was um, counselling, um, I just straight off booked ten, um, ten sessions of counselling um, privately. Um, I, I saw it as an investment in my long-term health, so um, it wasn't cheap. But then, uh, in hindsight, it was worth every penny. Um, I increased my um, exercise level because it's recognised that exercise is good to help with. Um, you know, depression and stress and, and anxiety. And then it was um, trying to convince my wife that it was, uh, that the real me was still there and that, you know, I, I was ill, um, but the real Mike was still here. You know, mm. the last 18 months had been someone else. You know, I, I'd been taken over by uh, cancer and depression and that the real Mike was still there and that, um, effectively begged um, to come back into the family family home and prove that I could rebuild my life and rebuild um, my my position within the family um, and um, and and be the be the father that I wanted to be um, and, and together with that um, I found Shine which is the charity um, I volunteer a lot for um, and started to engage with them. And I just hit, I just hit it with everything I could think of, everything I, I could do all at once, you know, to, to get a grip of uh, my recovery, you know, so to speak. I don't mm-hmm. know, recovery. I don't really like that word, but it is, it's, it's a fair, it's a fair word. Um, engaging with people that understood, the isolation you feel, um, and having gone through the same things, um, and um, just then really um, slowly. Um, understanding what you are feeling and why you are feeling in that way, and um, and and that process in itself gave lots of little rewards, which then you know in on their own probably weren't that great, but because they were all together, mm-hmm. the 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 kind of level of reward that I was getting was much bigger, much you know more intense, if you like. You know, I was getting good results from working and in, in being involved in the the charity. I did a course at the school to become a better parent. I didn't want to be a sar- the sergeant major father. I wanted to be, you know, the father that you know gets respect out of love and not out of fear. Because I was all about, you know, if you do this wrong, you can stand by, sort of, you know, disciplinarian. Um, I didn't want to be that person, and um, so I, I, I would, I would engage and say yes to anything which I thought was beneficial, and. Um, Oh, I don't know if you ever read the Yes book. Um, is, it, is it a book? No, it's, it's about a guy who says yes to everything and his life changed. And so I went through a period of, um, if I didn't have any particular reason to say no, then I would say yes. And so when I engaged with Shine, it was like, oh, why don't you come along for uh, for dinner? Yeah, okay. Why don't you come along? Go, yeah, okay. Would you like to do Well, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I've got no reason to say no. So um, and all those things together over about, you know, six months really started to have a really positive effect. Yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, to go through that, it, it takes a lot of strength to be able to acknowledge the emotions that you have and, and you know, particularly the ones that, that led you to being in that hotel and that, that moment yeah. to be able to kind of, like, talk about an incredible amount of inner strength to want to face those things and look at them and and um, reach out to other people that can understand or with your therapist like guide yeah I mean I think I think I'd rather I didn't get to that situation um, I wish um, things had progressed 
quicker. I'd sought help earlier, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I think for, for me and my kind of uh, mentality, I had to probably hit rock bottom before I was ready to accept that I needed some help and, you know, to rebuild again. Um, I'm a strong believer now in those therapies being a preventative measure. Right. Um to be um, to be engaged with much earlier on in the cancer process, you know, right from diagnosis, because just the diagnosis itself is just life changing and, and causes such a, you know, a 90 degree turn in, in, in your life. Um, so that's for me where I tried to advocate other men, especially not to see, um, you know, counselling is for, for mental head cases, um, not to see um, therapies of 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 whatever description as something in response to a crisis. Right. Um, you know, surely it's got to be better not to get into crisis in the first place and to just have those support structures much earlier on in the, in the treatment process and then to continue on so that they just become normal and there's no stigma of, you know, he's seeing counselling, he must be a bit mental, you know, um, you know, it's like so, really taking that apart and making it just like another appointment that you have, like because exactly. you already have a billion, a billion appointments. appointments. Just another thing which you know you need to get on with as part of your treatment program. Oh. Yeah, as opposed to there's something wrong with you. Um, oh. You need you need to you know you're you're a bit broken and we need to fix you with something. You know, so then because that just fuels the stigma of right. of men seeking counselling or, or men with mental health issues. You know, because you don't. You don't want your mates in the pub to think that you're a, you know, you are, you know, want of a better phrase for a mental, you know, a mental head case, you know, because, and that's so derogatory. Um, everybody has issues. Um, but, you know, in, a, in the sort of um, kind of masculine world, if you like, you know, um, you know, you know, that's that's how a lot of people think, you know, and you don't want people to think of you um I didn't want people to think of me as, you know, someone who was, who was weak. I wanted them to think of me of who I was, you know. Mike, I was strong, you know, and, you know, I would step up to the plate when I needed to, you know. I didn't want people to see me as struggling with, with mental health issues. Um, and, um, you know, so anything I can do to beat that stigma, that um, that men- mental health issues is not a negative thing and that it is... Um, you know, something to um, just to manage like you would any other um, medical issue. Right. Um, you know, that, um, you know, that uh, any anything I can do to sort of break those um, stigmas, then it's got to be a good thing for me. Thank you. And and a good thing for everyone that, yeah. that comes across. And we're going to hear um, from Dan and Neil and, um, you know, and I want to run by them what they think of of putting counselling or, you know, something, a therapy into place, um, if that would have made a difference with them. Thank you again. No worries. Thank you for having me along. Neil, um, thank you for coming in, and uh, and you were just listening to Mike. Yes, yes, brilliant. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that Mike was saying that you can relate. I can relate to as yeah. well, which is yeah, really interesting to sort of hear how Mike's um, Mike, Mike's gone through everything and what he's doing now as well to sort of you know help that stigma as well. Yeah, and um, so. Um, tell me what was going on with you in your life when you were diagnosed. Well, I, when I was diagnosed, I um, I was working a lot, probably working too much. Um, I've got a performance background and I run a business as well, so I was I was doing a lot um, within my work, and also I was very fit and very healthy with um, everything I was doing outside of work. I was was running, I was swimming, I was going to the, to the gym um, quite often. Had a personal trainer, so I was working out loads. So, you know, in my head at the time, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm fit, I'm healthy. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with me. There's, you know, I'm, I'm keeping, I'm looking after my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd never been to a hospital or a doctor pretty much in my life. 
So when you saw the lump, what, what did you think it was? I did the whole, uh, I'm fine. There's something appearing on my arm. It's just muscle. Surely it's just muscle. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fit, I'm healthy. And I, do you know what? I ignored it. And I ignored it um, for too long. Um, luckily, my, my personal trainer at the time was saying, you need to go to the doctor and get this looked at. Um, I did this whole thing of, no, you know, I, I don't need a doctor. I don't know why I thought like that. It's very strange. I, I just sort of got on with things and, and, and ignored it. But uh, luckily, by the time I went to see a doctor, they they said if you'd left it by another couple of weeks or so, then that tumour, once we had the biopsy and everything, um, it, it would have spread very quickly. So, um, it, yeah, that was, that was a major, major shock. Um, and everything stopped. Mm-hmm. Everything I was doing in my life stopped. I had two weeks to sort my life out. Um, well, sort sort a lot of things out before I started um, um, quite um, quite heavy treatment. So uh, I couldn't do any exercise. I had to stop all that. I had to sort my workout because I'm self-employed. So that was another struggle. I had to move flat to be near the hospital because I was in the hospital weekly. And sometimes I was um, admitted for a week at a time for the chemo I was having daily. So moving on top no, of no, everything. No, that's yeah, and and only a two week window to. No, we had a two. I, I had a two week window, and I had family who f- flew in, and uh, suddenly everything was you know stopped for family as well, um, mm-hmm. and friends as well. Um, everyone sort of came by to look after me quite quickly. At the time, it was it's still a big bubble. I can't really remember that this two week period. Um, in my head as well, I was like, oh, I've, I've got to keep working. I, I run a business, so I have to keep doing that. That's all I knew. Um, you know, and it, yeah, so everything kind of uh, was a big, massive change for me. Yeah, but moving flat as well. I don't know how I managed to do that, but... <laughs> it's so much. It's it, so much. I just needed somewhere for family to stay. Um, and I did need to be in the hospital because I had to be quite close. And um, so what was your treatment? I had um, uh, 14 rounds of uh, chemotherapy um, every two to three weeks. Um, I had five weeks of radiotherapy as well on top of that. Um, quite an aggressive treatment, which did actually... They did say you, you're you not really going to be able to do a lot. Um, you're going to be quite ill. I wasn't quite prepared on how much it would take over. Um there were times I was pretty much bedbound a lot as well in hospital, a lot for treatment. So for me, my treatment, I, I couldn't really do any exercise, a lot of exercise. Even walking was a struggle um, at times. Um, so for me, being fit, active, running a high energy job, performing. Right. All those things. Everything going. stopped overnight, yeah. pretty much overnight. And that was tough for me, really tough. And Neil, you're you're nodding. Does that yeah. does that <laughs> strike a yeah? The the toughness of it thing. all and the stress of everything. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. So you were in your early twenties. Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I was um, twenty five. I was um, I'm from Scotland originally, but I was working in London, running a bar, and um, I started to get really dizzy. Um, and went to the doctors and they thought it was an ear infection and gave me some meds and everything and then I just kept getting more and more dizzy and I didn't really know what was going on and then I FaceTimed my mum and dad and was talking about how I had sort of um, bad balance issues, my speech got quite slurred, Um, I found it hard to sort of, um, I did little tests on myself so um, if I closed my eyes and pointed at something on the table, my arm would be like a metre away. So I had really bad sort of coordination and everything. So my my mum was actually really worried that I had MS. Um, so she said, right, get yourself home today and we'll get you into the doctors um, and see what they can find. And they found a brain tumour, um, which they always seem to grade it in the size of fruits. So mine was the size of a plum, apparently. 
Um, but I've heard sort of tangerines and things. Luckily, it wasn't a melon, which was good. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, it How was... are you feeling about plums now? I don't mind plums. No. Bananas, I'm... Oh, but yeah, but that's a different story. But um, yeah. And then um, when they found the tumour, I was sort of rushed through to Aberdeen, where I had my um, surgery. And it was after they, found, they took the tumour out that they realised it was cancerous. And I was told that I'd have to have six and a half weeks of intensive um, radiation. Um, which was awful, really. It was really difficult, um, especially because it was to my whole um, cranium and my back as well. So it was a lot of sort of side effects that I wasn't quite expecting. And yeah, and then afterwards, I was sort of told, right, that's everything done. You're you're ba- you're fine. You're you're fixed. Um, which I didn't really feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so was that kind of um, how was that transition? for you from yeah going from that very active really intense treatment to kind of being let loose I mean it was really difficult because I I'd been independent since I was 19 so I moved back with my parents and they were looking after me and I really struggled with that lack of independence Mm -hmm. um the um DWP the uh, benefits um agency Um, told me that because I was under 26 I was still a child so I was entitled to less benefits Um, and therefore I felt even more angry because I was like I'm not a child like come on Mm -hmm. I'm I'm my own person Um, but yeah so I had no money and everything I had to rely on my folks and I just felt like I'd taken about a thousand steps backwards Um, and it was just just really tough and I couldn't do the things I was doing before I was like a sort of quite a confident person before I was going out I was partying a lot I was living that sort of lifestyle working 90 hours a week and that was fine and now I was like napping all the time and watching TV and just having cups of tea and I just wanted to like go and have a blowout but I had a few drinks one night and I was like dying for about two days afterwards so I couldn't do that anymore so it was it felt like I'd lost so many things which I really struggled with and so quickly as well like what what Dan was saying like it was just like it was like two weeks ago I was this normal guy mm-hmm. and now I'm like some, like a ghost of myself almost. And d- did you guys relate to um, what Mike was saying with um, personality changing and the Russian doll, yes. like the, the different faces that you put to different people in your life? Did you Did you find that there was pressure to keep everything in absolutely i do feel there was pressure um the the kind of person i i was and i have always been very confident and maybe that's again coming from a performance background i'm used to not lying but putting on (laughs) putting on a front that everything is okay and i got diagnosed it was a shock um i was scared i did feel really lonely i didn't know anybody who's ever had cancer before, didn't know anything about it, really, and it never been affected between my friends and family. So I think in my head, straight away, I was like, right, let's worry about every other person around me apart from myself. And that's what I did for a really long time. I did notice quite quickly, and overnight, again, I changed. Like, my personality, for me, had changed because I was maybe faking it a bit. Mm. around other people and I was I really was concerned about my family um a lot so and even to this day I think um even my family and friends said there wasn't one point through all my treatment and afterwards that I complained I didn't even moan nothing Mm. um and I'm looking back and thinking wow really I must have really just sort of kept going I'm fine I'm fine bottle all this in I'm fine I'm just getting on with it But the problem with doing that is you do get a delayed reaction, which I did have. So six months after treatment, um, it was actually since uh, experiencing Shine, going on the Great Escape, that I had um, some delayed trauma. Um, And I was encouraged to go and start seeking therapy. And I did, and the hospital sort of, I was transferred straight to to having some therapy sessions, which then that's when I realised, oh... Um, maybe I'm not fine. Um, and we started talking about how my whole experience with cancer and how I'd kept a lot of things to myself was um, actually quite normal, which I found. 
mm-hmm. a lot of people did do. Um, but afterwards, it was there was a delayed trauma. So I was getting trauma counselling. That's what they were sort of calling it. Um, yeah, because after there was a period after I had treatment, I, I didn't talk about cancer, and I was like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I just stopped mm. talking about it, avoided the subject. I'd even walk away from situations because I knew something was going to be brought up. And it got to the point when people said, you know, they want to know who I am. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you now? And then rather than go, do you know what? I'm not sleeping really well. I'm having a few panic attacks. My anxiety is just um, is creeping up on me, and that's new for me, anxiety problems. Um, but I didn't say anything like that. I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Let Then I change the subject. Right. So the therapy I started having actually got me used to talking about it again. Hence why coming today is yeah. a big thing um, because I'm happy to talk about my emotions, talk about how I'm dealing with it um, and opening up again because it's it's okay to talk about cancer. It shouldn't be a taboo subject. We uh, Mental health should not be a taboo subject. Um, Do so, you think yeah. there's more pressure on men not to talk? Do you know, I, th- I think there is... Um, not to talk and it's I think maybe just even I've just been that kind of person maybe I don't know if it's because I'm a guy that I just don't um open up to everyone about my emotions mm-hmm. I do with my friends I don't I don't hold back but there's uh, there has been times that I have I'm like why am I why am I being like that which is yeah it, it's it's changed now that I've started realizing that you know, I need to, if somebody, like, for example, I meet a lot of people through my job. Um, I meet a lot of people through my swimming team. Um, and if, you know, I disappeared for a couple of years, um, some people go, well, where have you been? Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just uh, go, oh, just been away. <laughs> you know, now I've started saying I had cancer treatment. And, you know... The response now isn't, oh, my God, what mm. cancer? It's, oh, then someone, you almost could relate to it in some other experience in their life. Or that maybe there's some, they're waiting for you to say something like that because maybe they have experienced cancer or someone in their family or just a big thing in their life. So, so it's quite interesting kind of how isolated you can feel when you're when you are kind of having these different fronts and this sense of holding things in but like you said yeah. even even with people that aren't super close to you actually when you do open up it ends up being a point of connection yeah it's not a bad thing saying that you've had cancer treatment it may be a shock to some people but i've realized it really isn't it's it should be something that we shouldn't just hide away of you know you know, I've had cancer treatment and then I had to deal with the fact that I had cancer. Yeah. So it's it's okay to say that to somebody. <laughs> and did you experience, so um, Mike talks about anger, did you experience an emotions that you didn't have before in terms of like numbness or um, frustration or like would you say there was one particular emotion that kind of came through? Well, for me, I think it was, it, it was numbness. I didn't have any anger, or maybe I don't. I don't. I, looking back, I don't think I had any anger. I think there was, there maybe was frustration, but the numbness for me that was overnight. The numbness. Oh my god, what's just happened? And then put on this front. Mm. So my acting skills came in yep. instantly. <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, I've got cancer. Hey, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But actually, so inside, it's almost like a protective coating <laughs> of yeah. numbness. Yeah. And and what about you, Neil? I, I can relate. I had extreme sort of anger. I had these um, constant dreams, like Mike was saying about dreams. Um, my Every single night, I'd have dreams about punching things nonstop. And I'd wake up and I'd be scared that I'd broken my hands and my knuckles were all bloody and realised that I hadn't. And I just had like an overwhelming urge just to like, I'd be walking down the street and just think, I really hope someone just starts a fight with me or something. I really just hope I can just, and which is so bizarre because I'm not like an angry person before, but it was like how I was venting things. Um, And I think my sort of, um, sort of growing up in the north of Scotland as well, you're, 
um, my my parents were fantastic, like bringing me up. But I think other influences sort of taught me that you just you've got to be strong and everything, and you've got to hold things together. So I didn't really understand how to let these emotions out properly, and that it was okay to sort of cry and be upset and everything. So I find that anger was the easiest thing to sort of channel things into. Um, which was really unhealthy and I, I ended up, it was about six months after the sort of dust settled after treatment where I was really not well um, mentally and I thought right this is not good and so I went to counselling and it was there that it was interesting that it sort of brought up my earlier life um, I'm dyslexic so in school I was they didn't pick it up and I was told I was stupid um, I remember sort of an overwhelming feeling of like from my teachers and things of just being useless and worthless um, and so I just completely took that on as a persona and I was just quite self-destructive um, drinking a lot and not treating myself very well and when I became vulnerable after cancer all of that came out and I recognised it and actually going to the counselling and getting some of those issues sorted and recognising that I wasn't these things that I thought I was and that I had some sort of some good things that I could offer people and that like I wasn't I wasn't this person I thought I was and I could be kind to myself as well I didn't really know that before I'd never been told that I have to be nice to myself <laughs> I've been told about being nice to other people but never nice to myself so learning that um was a huge thing for me and it's actually really benefited me so I'm in some ways it's like <coughs> better for me now than than I was before, really, so yeah. So it sounds like that this really gave you an opportunity to look at sort of pre-existing ways of thinking and coming up with, like, new pathways for going forward. Yeah, definitely. It's made me, all in all, become a bit more of a healthier person. Like, I remember um, one of my teachers in school telling me, I'm so glad I'm not your dad. And at the time, I thought, yeah, whatever. But it was when everything, when the dust settled, when I was vulnerable again, that it all came out. And I recognised that, like, one of the most important things is making my, like, my parents, but especially my dad, proud of me. So, like, whenever my mum says that to me, I just break down. (laughs) Because now I can recognise that, like, that's important for me. And it's not a bad thing. Whereas before I was quite happy being, well, as I said it, quite happy being like a fuck up, just a waste of space. And like I used to like revel in that, which is just incredibly bizarre to think about. And I'm in a lot more of a healthier place now. But that's through seeking help and through going to counselling. And I had counselling at Maggie's, um, specific um, counselling for cancer patients. And then I also had a course of CBT therapy, which I found completely changed my perspective and yeah, I, I can highly recommend that to anyone, especially if you want to learn a little bit about yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you find, this is a question for both of you, how do you find talking to other men in particular? Do you find there's a different way of communicating about cancer? I, going through what not my whole cancer um, treatment, everything in the hospital, looking back, I realised I was... Um, dealing with mostly, uh, well, fe- there's female patients mm-hmm. I was talking to, there were female nurses, and I, uh, there were some things I know that I wanted to talk to a guy about, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't notice a lot of that when I was in the hospital. Um, so that I think meeting or, or talking to some of my male friends, I do kind of open up a bit to them but yeah I think there's maybe there is that kind of side that there are some things that the thing is especially in the demographic of 20s 30s and 40s it is a a lot more women that are accessing groups and and stuff than there are men and and that's why like I feel um, that you know there needs to be more spaces for men to talk about some of the effects and you know if doctors like talk to you about you know dating and libido and and changes in those ways that sometimes is nicer to talk to another man that understands that. I definitely didn't have that kind of doctor though, the the talking about libido, talking about dating and how you're going to feel afterwards or during. And I do remember trying to look actually for forums and things, which I did struggle to find. And I didn't know about Shine actually until I finished my treatment, which was still a good time. Yeah. 
or any time to find so a So you did find yourself actively sort of looking for yes. resources about that? Um, well, I, I find as well that, like, um, because I was a guy... I'd lost my hair, I'd put on two stone, I had a whopping big scar on the back of my head, but it was a guy, so it didn't matter that I I wouldn't have body confidence issues. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I was a guy, I was fine. And also because I was saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Right. Yeah, yeah. But well, I yourself fine. that you're fine. Like, like my confidence had been shot. Like going out on dates now, I felt awful about myself. And so, like, it was just really tough. But then I felt that I was being looked at because I was. And maybe it was coming from me as well because I was this strong person that I, I'll be fine. And there's not all these confidence issues. That that's not that's not like a strong man's perspective. And actually, just stopping for a minute and saying, "Yeah, I mean, I I get a bit shy sometimes now, and I've struggled to say some things." And um, my my best mate really helped me with that because I spoke to him and I said, yeah, "I'm really struggling with this because I'm going on dates now, and I can't say anything nice to anyone. I can chat to someone, but saying." you look pretty is just beyond me so like he was a, a few and also the um shine dating after cancer group there was a few tips in there which were about like just trying to like treat every date like a practice date and so like going along and thinking right i'm gonna just try one little thing here and just say okay you've got a nice necklace and then that's like a little goal for me and i can be like right okay i'm a little bit better now and then the next time i meet someone and just like practicing a bit and then that's how i sort of increase my confidence but definitely from like a guy's perspective and again with like sex like going to some sex sessions and it, they're they're handing out lubricant and i'm like yeah that's not my issue <laughs> it's like <laughs> so it's but it is because you're a minority um, so it is a bit different, but I think also having this, that space to talk to other guys as well. Um, I I enjoy talking to to women about things as well. Like I enjoy going to meetups, and I don't mind if it's just me the only guy. But sometimes it's nice to know there's other people there. And I think especially when I found Shine, it was that I wasn't alone. It wasn't like a hundred women and me. It was yeah. there was a whole range of ages, of genders, of of. Um, sexualities of race it, like it was normal people it wasn't just me on my own so I think that really really helped yeah and how did you feel about dating uh, do you know what it's funny I'm still actually struggling a little bit with um, the dating side I, when I I was looking after my body beforehand and I, you know I enjoyed going to the gym and everything but then as soon as I had treatment I again lost all my hair um, put on weight because of the steroids I was having and not doing any exercise and just eating whatever I wanted to eat really because I was like I'm going through cancer treatment I'll have that pizza <laughs> I don't care um, so then that completely did knock my confidence um, and yeah it, it did sort of change me inside for the whole kind of dating and, and sex side of things and I felt really ugly I looked really ill I just like, well, no one wants to... I couldn't even go out to have a date, even if I did, you know, if, when I was having treatment because I was very ill. And it took a while afterwards for my for me to just feel a bit more confident with my body and how I looked because I, I looked so pale through my treatment um, and having a massive scar on my arm, just things, you know, that have mm -hmm. changed. There were by points where I was having treatment, I look in the mirror and I was like, oh... It's just like, you really just look at yourself and go, I just look disgusting. Even though your friends and family go, oh no, you're rocking right. the bald look, you look great. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, inside. you really suit being bald. Oh gosh, <laughs> I that all, I look, all the time. I look like a bowling ball. I don't I suit being bald didn't at all. Like it at all. And, <laughs> and I, I lost some of my beard hair, so I had like a Hugh Jackman, like <laughs> Wolverine thing going on. And I was like, how on earth am I looking good? Like, people are just. The only good thing shit. was you didn't have to shave. Uh, you yeah. hadn't shaved for a year, so, you know. But. <laughs> But yeah, afterwards, it took a while for me to to just feel okay with my body. But still, the dating side, I am talking about this with my therapist. That's what we've been going through. In my head, I'm like, oh, bringing up cancer. You don't have to bring up cancer on a first date, obviously. But it will have to be brought up. Is it going to scare somebody off? Will they worry about my cancer coming back? There's all these things mm. that you worry about with dating. Mm. Um, and then the sex side of it, I think it's just getting used to, you know, feeling comfortable in your body again because of the trauma and everything you've been through. The drugs that have been pumped into your body, the, uh, mm. the prodding, the poking, the surgery, 
you're quite protective of your body and yeah. I think that's um, scary to sort of let somebody else be in your comfort zone again I think so especially if you're especially if you're like the you see yourself as the sort of macho male role if you're if you have to swap that like I can't lie down flat now and I can't like move about that easily so certainly in that sort of aspect I'm not the sort of macho person I was before I can't just do similar things so I just have to like take things a bit slower and have that conversation with someone which is quite difficult in the person I was before but then I think over time as well and over therapy and think things just accepting that that is me now and that it's not nothing to be sort of ashamed of and that yeah. I don't have to be that sort of chauvinistic sort of male person I can be just myself and just happy with myself and that if someone has a problem with that they're probably the, not the right person for me anyway so yeah and there's something about hearing you guys like talking about that like it, it really normalizes the experience I mean yeah. it's rubbish yes. and it's shit but you know even knowing that someone else is looking in the mirror and kind of feeling the same mm. way or, or kind of thinking of dates as like one increment at a time like a practice date like the um knowing that yeah your your experiences are are um understood yeah. by other people it's, it's really... scary going back out to trying to be how you were before mm. um knowing that your things have changed in yeah. your life now um and i was really confident with dating or meeting people but then suddenly now like you know going on a date is like it's actually really terrifying I think what helped with me was recognising that a lot of things have changed for the worse, but also some things have changed for the better. Yeah. And that actually, it's not... At this point in time, I'm not a worse person than I was three years ago. There's some difficult things that have happened, and there's some barriers there, and there's some speed bumps that make things a bit more challenging. But overall, there's some things that, that have been brought into my life that are positive, that I can offer people, that I can be... That people can see that I've been through this and I've, I can use my experience to help people. So, like, it's not all negative, I think. That's that's the way I try and view it. So, using your experience, we're going to have Mike come back into the studio. And we're going to... Um, so, just uh, thinking about your... your if you were to tell someone who is um, coming towards the end of treatment a piece of advice or that you wish that you had known at that point something that you thought would be useful? I think I wish that I'd sort of heard that, first of all, that it's okay to not be okay. You don't have to be this positive, smiley person. You don't, you don't have to worry. You're going, you've gone through cancer treatment. There's a bit of you that you have to look at yourself and help yourself. It's great looking after all these other people, but you have to take a minute to look at yourself. And that if people have told you, I mean, something traumatic has happened to you. So, I mean, talking about it with someone and opening up to someone isn't a sign of weakness. And I mean, it's, it's if you broke your arm, you'd fix it. So your, your head is probably not gonna be in the best place. And it might be six months later, and just being aware that that might happen. And then when it starts to happen, like Mike said, instead of waiting for, breaking point or a crisis or something when you start to deteriorate maybe just speak to someone um and it doesn't have to be intense counseling it can just be going for a walk with your mate and just speaking to them and just being a bit honest and saying you know i feel really crappy about this or this has been really tough and i mean from the other side of it as well from some if you're wanting to help someone who's been through that just giving them that time and space and listening to someone um i have a mate who um I have a mate, Ben, who any time I tell him anything that's happened, he says, oh, that's really shit. That, <laughs> yeah. that really sucks, man. And I'm like, yeah, it does. And then he just lets me talk a little bit, and I'm like, I need that. I don't need someone yeah. to tell me I'm brave or inspirational or anything. Yeah. I just want someone to listen and tell me it's rubbish because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think, I think um, definitely um, don't walk away. When you finish treatment, think that you're just going to move on. Um, and avoid it, which there was a point where I did. I thought, okay, right, I don't want to talk about this anymore, I don't, which that's what causes the problems. And I think even if you're not offered, um, I know they're saying through the NHS, you're not instantly offered um, therapy. 
I would say, ask for it um, and take it up quite quickly after after treatment, um, just so that you can start balancing out everything. And I think that's what I, I just left it quite long, and that's what um, I th I think definitely talk about it a lot sooner say Neil was saying mm -hmm. what's the worst that's going to happen <laughs> exactly <laughs> what about you Mike <clears throat> just supporting what Neil and Dan have just said really I think um, speaking about um, cancer your own diagnosis uh, much earlier on um, as opposed to um, waiting until um, you know after after treatment's finished I think it has its benefits, um, you know, because then you, because cancer is a big deal and um, you need to work through it, you know, from the start, even even when you're in treatment, just to sort of sit down with someone and say, you know, right, I'm going through this, this is happening, that's happening, and just trying to process it all. Um, then, um, but if you, but equally, if you're not feeling the same as you used to if you feel that something's not right you're not you can't put a finger on it but you're not sure then then don't be afraid to speak up and, and go and see your, your gp or speak to your um specialist nurse or, or your oncologist you know and just say look something's not right i can't put a finger on it but um you know um i just thought i'd tell you and then then hopefully that would then open up the avenues which um will stop you from going down the road of, um, you know, the kind of disaster that I personally did. But <laughs> but that's the, that's the kind of advice for me. Don't, don't give up and don't be afraid to seek advice. Well, thank you to all of you for sharing that um, and for, for coming in you. and for chatting. And, um, yes, um, and if you feel... Like you want to reach out, um, you can go to shinecancersupport.org. There's loads of things on there, aren't there? There's the yeah, Shine Camp, there's private so Facebook yeah. groups, we've blogs. got Twitter blogs, we've yeah. vlogs, we've got all the things. You get WhatsApp <laughs> groups now when you go yeah. and meet up, so you yeah. can connect to so many people. All the things. So go on there and um, you know see, see what others are saying, have a reach out. There's loads and loads of support out there. And and um, so just before we say goodbye, I just want to do a massive um, shout out to uh, Radio Facilities for being such awesome support for our podcast. And till next time, see you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.